0: On October 3rd, 1962, American astronaut Wally Shirah, a little over nine hours after he had left the Earth's surface, returned to it by splashing down in the Pacific Ocean. When he and his spacecraft, Sigma-7, were on board the rescue ship, the aircraft carrier USS Kearsarge, Shira went over to the capsule, reached inside it, and activated the explosive bolts that blow open the hatch. Operation of that mechanism required striking it with such force that Sherrod's metal-reinforced glove was torn and his hand severely bruised. Sherrod did not need to blow the hatch on Sigma-7, but he had a very good reason for doing so. A little over a year earlier, in July 1961, astronaut Gus Grissom became the second American to fly in space, but very famously when his 15 minutes of suborbital flight had ended. Grissom's craft, named Liberty Bell 7, splashed into the Pacific and sank, because the capsules hatched opened prematurely. A popular belief, then and now, was that Grissom had manually blown the hatch due to panic. That version of the story persisted and plagued Grissom, despite his and his fellow Mercury astronauts' vehement denials that Grissom had been responsible for blowing the hatch. Therefore. When Chirac had his turn in a Mercury capsule, he wanted to vindicate Grissom before the whole world and prove once and for all that the blown hatch on Liberty Bell 7 was not the fault of its pilot, Gus Grissom. Shira made the case for his fellow astronaut by activating the explosive bolts on the hatch of his own craft, Sigma-7, and then showing the distinct mark on his hand that resulted. The spacecraft had been designed in such a way that to blow the hatch a significant amount of force had to be applied to the mechanism in a rather unique way, a way which resulted in rather unique, in fact unmistakable, bruising for the astronaut. After blowing the hatch, Shirah had that distinct mark, a mark which Gus Grissom never had after his mission. Thus, for astronauts Shirah and Grissom, the proof was in the mark. The sad outcome of the story is that Grissom's reputation never recovered and most retellings of the sinking of Grissom's Liberty Bell 7 place the blame very much at Grissom's feet. But enough about the space age, and Shiraz bruised, and Grissom's unbruised hands, let's turn to marks that are even more distinctive. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry a podcast and blog dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. You can learn more about who we are by visiting storiesofsymmetry.com. But for now, let's discuss Stigmata. One of the more famous passages from Isaiah reads, Surely he bore our sufferings and felt our sorrows. We saw this and thought that God was punishing him. And yet, it was for our wrongs that he was wounded, for our evils that he was crushed. His punishment brought wholeness to us, and because of his scars, we are healed. The he about whom this prophecy was written is the Jewish Messiah. The author said that, at first glance, it would look like God was afflicting him for some wrong that he had committed, but upon closer examination, it was for our wrongs that he suffered, and through that suffering, we are healed. The King James Bible translates that last part as, with his stripes, we are healed, painting a vividly eidetic image of the Messiah's flogged and lacerated back. His torn skin. Christians, of course, believe that Jesus was the Messiah mentioned here in Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament. Christ followers believe that through Jesus' suffering, through his wounds, we are healed, as a collective and as individuals. By the way, the specifics of the wounds are well known. The New Testament provides detailed accounts of the arrest, trial, torture, and death. Of Jesus. The series of tortures that Jesus endured between his arrest and death are referred to as his passion, from the Latin verb patior passus, meaning to undergo, endure, or suffer, from which English words patience, a form of suffering, and compassion, to suffer with, are derived. During his passion, Jesus was struck, beaten, flogged with terrible Roman flaggery, harassed, mocked with a crown of thorns, crushed beneath the weight of his cross as he was made to carry it through the streets. And then there are the most iconic wounds of all, the stigmata. The disciple Thomas, one of the original twelve, the one who has the unenviable moniker Doubting Thomas, has the epithet, Because he was absent when the resurrected Jesus first appeared to his followers. And when the others gave him the incredulous news that Jesus, the very same Jesus who had only days earlier been crucified, was now alive and had stopped by to say hello, Thomas understandably was unconvinced. He told the others that he would believe their tale only when Jesus himself stood before him and he had felt the scars from the cross. One week later, Jesus appeared again, and Thomas was present. And Jesus said to Thomas, Go on, feel the holes in my hands and in my feet where the nails were, feel my side where the spear pierced me. Do not doubt, but believe that it is I. The Bible also tells us that the body of the resurrected Jesus was restored. He did not return from the dead as the bloody, broken figure who had died upon the cross. When he rose, he did so with a body that was somehow restored. So much so was he renewed and majestic that even his closest followers did not recognize him at first glance. And yet, that restored body was not completely renewed. It, he, Jesus, still bore five marks, four from nails and one from a spear. These are called the stigmata. In the blog post With a Loud Voice from June 2022, we learn that Jesus exclaimed, It is finished! and then died. After Jesus had spoken these last words, the Roman soldiers attending his execution were quite confident that he was dead. To be absolutely certain, however, one of them took his spear and thrust it into Jesus' side. Keep in mind that Jesus was elevated on a cross. Therefore, the soldier at ground level had to direct the spear upward to pierce him. And the Bible tells us that a mixture of blood and water poured out from the wound. Modern physicians and forensic analysts attribute the water, so described, to pericardial fluid. The watery lubricant that surrounds the heart. If that's the case, as it is the most plausible understanding, then Jesus was, in fact, stabbed through the heart. This is the wound in his side. The other stigmata are nail holes. For two reasons, it is difficult to comment authoritatively about where these appear on Jesus' body. The first is that the Romans employed several variations on the cross, including X-shaped and capital T-shaped ones, rough-hewn trees, and, of course, the lowercase t cross with which Jesus is associated. Each of these crosses could have used slightly different methods to bind their victims, perhaps using different locations for the nails. The second reason is essentially poorly informed tradition. Although depictions of Christ on the cross are common in some Christian denominations, most notably Roman Catholic, and have been around for centuries, it was not until several centuries after the death of Jesus that they first appear. The crucifixion was described in relative detail by the Gospel writers, but creating a visual image of such horrors was beyond the first Christians, beyond those of the first several centuries. In the 4th century, Roman Emperor Constantine, a Christian convert, outlawed the age-old practice of crucifixion, and only in the generations thereafter, when the reality of that ghastliness was beyond living memory, did Christians begin to portray the scene using visual arts. One can easily imagine, then, how the precise details of crucifixion had been sufficiently forgotten by the society collective carry that forward to today, where only a handful of people on the planet have witnessed such a horrific scene as death by crucifixion, that the reality of it is so far removed from us that nearly every faithful Catholic, and other Christians as well, have in their home, or carry on their person, a crucifix, a carving of Jesus on the cross, a man being tortured. That barbaric scene is, oddly enough, often depicted quite beautifully, far removed from the reality it portrays. Let's face it, a cathedral would not carry the same majesty if, instead of a woodworker's masterpiece hanging behind the altar, there were instead a naked man bleeding to death and crying out in agony as he pushes his weight against the nails in his feet and scrapes his excoriated back against the splintered wood, lest he suffocate from his own weight before the strength fails him and hangs limp once more from the nails in his wrists. No sane person wants such a scene in church, or above a dresser, or as a piece of jewelry, or anywhere at all. Understandably, then, the image of the crucifix is a little removed from reality. This digression only to stress the point that we don't know exactly where the nails would have been because no eyewitness or any reliable source recorded it for posterity. Today, however, we have a better understanding than our medieval friends due to extensive archaeology. For the feet, there are two leading theories. The first is that Jesus' feet would have been overlapped, one on top of the other, with a single spike driven through both, somewhere high on the foot near the ankle. The second is that each foot was placed on either side of the beam, with spikes driven through the part of the ankle that meets the lower leg, at the lateral malleolus of the fibula or thereabouts. Other locations are also plausible. As for the hands, it doesn't take a medical physicist to understand that a nail through each palm could not support the weight of a person. For this reason, some artists use rope to bind Jesus at the upper arms. The reality of the situation, though, is that neither palms nor ropes were used. In fact, experts on the subject are quite confident that Jesus, and all victims of such crucifixion, were fixed to the cross with a nail through the very distal part of the forearm, just proximal to the wrist between the radius and ulna through the median nerve. This location would have been not only horrifically excruciating, but quite capable of supporting the victim's own weight. No ropes required. Now, suppose that you are reading your Bible, perhaps even in the original language, and you tell me. But then, hands and feet are explicitly mentioned, not wrists and ankles. Take heart, for both can be correct. You see, unlike modern anatomists, denizens of the ancient world were a bit looser with their divisions of the body. When the foot was referenced, that indicated the part of the body from the very lower leg down through the toes, areas that we might decompose into lower leg, ankle, and foot. But to inhabitants of the Roman Empire, the word foot was sufficient. Similarly, with the hand, which to the authors of the New Testament quite naturally included everything from the distal forearm through the fingertips. These details aside, they not mattering in the end anyway, the takeaway is that Jesus bore certain marks on his body. At the time of his death, they were all over. But when he resurrected, the only marks that remained were the stigmata, a wound in his side from the spear, two holes near or on the feet from nails, and two holes near or on the hands also from nails. For something like a thousand years now, people, usually devout Christians, have come forth bearing the stigmata. St. Francis of Assisi is perhaps the most famous. He bore the marks after an angelic encounter in the year 1224. It ought to be assumed that some of these reports are hoaxes or self-inflicted wounds, and yet others, at least at first glance, appear genuine. And if a person bears authentic, God-given stigmata, then it is said that that person bears the marks of Christ. We can take that expression and ask a question for today's episode. What are the marks of Christ? In his apopemptic notes to the church in Galatia, Paul said this, From now on let no one trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. More than likely, he was referring to physical marks, those on his body. Not stigmata or crucifixion wounds, mind you, but the striped back of one who has been flogged on multiple occasions, the bruises and poorly set bones of one who has been stoned and beaten for his proclamation of the good news. Don't give me any crap, Paul said, about my preaching methods, and don't question my motives, for I have scars that prove my dedication. To Jesus and His message. Paul makes a compelling argument. It is difficult to doubt the intent or authenticity of a preacher whose faith has been vindicated physically, who has stood up for Christ, been quite literally beaten down for it, and who has stood up again and continued on boldly. In short, we find it difficult to cast doubt upon the one who puts his or her body on the line for the good news. And while I believe that Paul was literal in his comments to the Galatians, indeed referencing bodily wounds, that doesn't mean that we can't think more broadly. We can ask about the marks of Christ in the same way that we can consider the mark of a good person. One decent human might scarcely resemble, physically, some other decent human, as their marks are not corporeal, but something beyond. In the same way there are physical marks of Christ, I the stigmata, for example. But are there not other marks also? And though physical scars are identifiable and frequently permanent, the marks that Jesus leaves in his followers are still more distinct and much, much more indelible. What is it to be a Christian, and are there marks whereby they can be recognized? Stigmata are distinct, but more generally, the marks of Christ are on one's spirit and manifested in one's actions. Take, for example, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul's words about faith, hope, and, most importantly, love. Three unmistakable marks of Jesus. Faith. Such strong faith as to move a mountain with a word. To step out into the foaming deep because Jesus says, "Come." to journey to the far end of the world believing that you have good news for every person. Hope. Such fervent hope as to believe that the kingdom of heaven can be realized here on earth, and that you are its most important builder. That a brotherhood of man is possible, not at the point of the sword or through legislation, but through love and choice. That justice can be the way of the world, and peace the way of the heart. And love, such passionate love as to join in another's sufferings and triumphs, to regard others as equals, to bless the people who make your life hell, and to treat strangers as you would treat your closest friend, or even yourself, or even Jesus. There are more than these three. What about the peace that characterizes a Christ follower, so beyond belief to outsiders who? dumbfoundedly ask, Can it be? How are you so tranquil when the world around you is so hectic? To which the Christian replies, I have the peace of Christ. It's beyond my understanding, but my equilibrium is firmly in my firm Lord, and he is in control even in the most uncontrollable mess. What about the self control? To forsake worldly distractions and strive for loftier, idyllic dare we say, Heavenly goals? That instead of spending one's energies chasing after stuff and things and trinkets and the malavolins of our culture and the things that wear out and are eaten by moths and stolen by thieves, the followers of Jesus place their efforts in reshaping the world to fit it with God's own kingdom. What about the joy that, even in the midst of tumult, a Christian can be joyous because Jesus has ransomed the sinner? and reunited mankind with its divine creator. Yes, we can go on and on about the marks of Christ and his followers. They are what gather the marginalized, intrigue the uninterested, forgive the loathsome, exculpate the guilty, enrich the poor, bless the cursed, and compel those who detest religion to consider taking a seat at the communion table. And on and on, I can continue to list the marks of a Christ follower. Physical marks like the stigmata or Paul's striped back are marks of Jesus, and they should not be shirked from. Worthy is how Jesus will describe those who have physically suffered on his behalf, who have sacrificed their bodies for the gospel's sake. And yet, one can hold up stigmata like a standard and show the world scarred hands, but the real standard of stigmata is the lifestyle of a Christian. If I show off a physical wound and say, I bore this for Christ, but I don't have love for my neighbor, then what am I? If I say, look at the scars where they burned me for the sake of Jesus, but I don't have forgiveness, then what standard do I embody? The standard of stigmata is one thing, but more important, far more important, is how one lives one's life, and whether or not it mirrors the life of Jesus. The standard of stigmata is met when you put God first in your life, enough to make others say, I don't know what you're doing that I'm not, but I want what you have. Tell me your secret. And then you do. It's no secret. It's Jesus. For it was not the scars of Jesus that drew the masses to him. It was the life he lived, and an attitude that was fixed not on the shortcomings of mankind, but on the potential and love of God. My name is Ben Laboot, and thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry today. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be on the lookout for the upcoming blog series called Corpus on storiesofsymmetry.com. In it, we'll take a deeper look at the body of Christ and his church. I hope you'll join again in two weeks for the penultimate episode of Season 3, titled Living Stones. Between now and then, consider helping us reach a broader audience by telling others about the show, sharing us on social media, forwarding the content you find on storiesofsymmetry.com, or even making a financial donation if you're so inclined. As we go forth today, Let's consider the standard of stigmata, and as you do so, go with God, go in peace.